0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I have this pleasure of speaking with Ilana Maymind about her recent book, Exile and Otherness, The Ethics of Shinran and Maimonides, published by Lexington Books in 2020. Professor Maymind's research focuses on East-West comparative religious thought. She teaches in the Department of Religious Studies of Chapman University in California. Professor Maymine, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about my work, and uh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So to begin with, I just um, wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you came to uh, the study of religion, and specifically comparative religion, because that's an... In some ways, that's an increasingly rare sort of direction nowadays.
1: Uh, So um, I guess my way of coming to academy is somewhat unconventional uh, because I was born in Riga, Latvia, and uh, at a time when religion was completely off, um, was not something that permitted in a way. So it was considered the opium of the masses, very Marxist approach to religion. Uh, So... I feel that for most of my life, until I came to this country, I was actually exiled from religion, in a sense, uh, because, uh, again, it wasn't something that uh, was uh, allowed and uh, accepted, especially um, Judaism, too. Judaism was not something that was actually part of uh, just general parlance and the terms so of Buddhism. It was completely unknown. So um, I was very interested, however, in uh, understanding um, religious laws because one of the things I heard so-called that uh, Judaism is kind of driven by this legalistic approach to religious law. But I also heard about Buddhism as something like free-floating, all you need to do is uh, go into meditation and you just become a Buddha. And it's very interesting how so I thought those two very different approaches was something that I thought I wanted to explore. So I um, started studying and very quickly I realized that my perceptions about both Judaism and Buddhism are completely off mark. If not completely, but quite a bit off mark. So, um, but why I was uh, picking up uh, those two thinkers, was because certain things that really appealed to me in both of them. One was that I perceived them more of a heretics in some ways because they were going with the tradition but also against the tradition. And uh, um, so I was also very much influenced by Jesus Smith's assertion that study of religion cannot be undertaken without comparison. So, And comparison is something that started with Greek, so this kind of gossip curiosity wanting to know about other cultures and so i kind of put myself in the position of this gossiper i wanted to see what it is different religions and we live in this multifaceted multicultural uh, religious traditions and so that's what i wanted it was a challenge of course and when i mentioned that i'm wanting to study those two i got a lot of questions like why those two why to compare why would you even bother this but it, actually made me even more
0: interested. Thanks for that introduction about your background. That's really interesting. Um, Now, in the the introduction to this book, you state that exile um, influenced both Ximedan's and Maimonides' thought, and that exile can potentially have a rather specific effect on one's ethical outlook. And so without going into too much details of those two men's uh, lives about the sort of specific circumstances of their exiles, What what's this sort of broader effect of ex- exile on ethical outlook that you're wanting to draw out in this book?
1: Uh, so perhaps it might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but uh, I was always interested in language and the effects of language on our thought process. And I thought about those two people being placed outside of their language so when i think about outside of their language i don't mean that shinran did not know japanese he knew japanese it didn't change but what i'm thinking about as i'm thinking specifically about shinran and then i'll talk a little bit what my mind is is that when you're taking out of your familiar environment so he was in a monastic environment there was a specific lexicon and then he's taken out of this uh, specific environment. He's placed in the community of farmers, and he needed to adjust his uh, language. So the language actually is something, I think, attunes our understanding of others, but also our kind of ethical approach. How do we relate to others? A lot of times it's expressed, in my view, through language. And I sometimes think we don't pay too much attention to this, and I think it's an important part. So for, sh- for my mom, it might be a little bit different because, again, he didn't need to learn another language because he already was exposed to Arabic when he lived in Spain. His exile uh, made him, he was comfortable with this, but um, Hebrew became much less prevalent for him unless he was in the community. So he was both in community and out of community. So I think that gave him a different perception. And, but he also had to relate to different people. So I think, again, for him as well, so language first. But the main component of what I think attuned their ethical approaches, what kind of people they became exposed to. I already mentioned about Shinran again, there was farmers, not monastic community. Whereas for my mind, this, he was in an environment where he constantly realized that he depends on the tolerance of hosts. He was not in his own country. He was not in his own community at large, so he always was aware that he needed to navigate between this tolerance and acceptance, and the possibility that this tolerance acceptance can change overnight. Because he already was in an environment where he was his family was completely accepted in Spanish, uh, sorry, in Muslim Spain, but then the change, the different uh, rule came and. Uh, Uh, No longer, um, Almahads were no longer tolerating anyone who was not Jewish, so here is a different component. Shannon did not experience the same kind of fear that his community somehow can be uh, forced to be expelled or expected to change, but he was exposed to different ways of looking at life. And I think, again, like I said, my my language was an important component. So for both of them, they had to kind of navigate between compromise mm-hmm. and being kind of steady, steadfast on what they're used to. Uh, more so for my mom, as he really needed to compromise a lot. But for Shinran mm-hmm. too, he needed to compromise because he was in a different environment and experience, and also exercise respect to people that different than him, himself different kind of community with different type of approaches so this compromise the tolerance this exposure to different people made them uh reconsider or maybe um, attune their ethics and i think influenced them a lot in my view
0: great so so just for listeners who aren't familiar with Shinran, he was, Shinran was a Japanese monk who um, was born in 1173 and died in 1262 and ended up becoming the founder or sort of being, being a, uh, uh, sort of retrospectively um, became the, the founder of uh, what we now know as the True Pure Land School of Japanese um, Buddhism, the um, Jodo Shinshu, so uh can you just very briefly explain who shinran was and what sort of exile it was that he experienced and then wh- why you chose to focus on that him and then i want to ask you the um a similar question about maimonides and again for those of you who aren't familiar with maimonides the sort of great medieval jewish philosopher he was born in muslim spain and um well i guess it wasn't spain then but uh, on. Iberian Peninsula in 1138 and he died in Egypt in 1204. So again, sort of what kind of, um, can you just give us just the briefest biographical introduction to these two figures, um, just briefly explain what their exile was, what the circumstances of it were, and why you you, um, chose to focus specifically on these two?
1: So you already mentioned uh, somewhat of uh, Shinran's background. I want to talk a little bit just how exile happened. Uh, he was a student of Honan, who uh, actually started the Pure Land uh, School. Um, as you mentioned, the Shinran School was through Pure Land. There are some differences. Uh, but uh, one of the things that Honan uh, created is so-called exclusive nimbutsu this was a practice of recitation of Amida Buddha name. And Honan kind of held the idea that all that is needed is recitation of Amida Buddha. And his uh, teaching became much more oriented on people who cannot enter the monastic tradition and exercise a different type of uh, approach. So it was much more focused on regular people, so-called simple people. Uh his exclusive uh, Nembutsa became um, perceived as dangerous uh, in the Tendai uh, Buddhist tradition from which uh, he and uh, Shinran initially uh, started because, again, it was addressing to the general population and it was, in a way, undermining the Tendai tradition. So that's how exile happened. And uh, Shinran was one of his, he was not the only student of honen but he was uh, one of his students. And so Honan and some of his students were exiled. And they were exiled from Kyoto uh, to... Uh, specifically, uh, Shinran was exiled to Ishika. Uh, and uh, in the process of his exile, he was defrocked. He was no longer a monk. So he was removed from the monastic environment. And again, Ishika was a very... Um, conditions very harsh. The winters there were very cold uh, uh, he no longer had any help. He needed to fetch for himself to so, so-called. And first thing he did, actually, when he entered his exile, he get married, which was breaking with monastic tradition altogether. This is, I mentioned before, that I was attracted to his her- heretical kind of streak in his personality. And so he gets married and he uh, has children. And he is actually uh, living the life of of like a regular person. And he gets exposed to those regular people, people who sometimes from the Buddhist tradition are not even seen or worthy. For instance, they were warriors or the people uh, who were somehow making their living by taking life. And this is not what is acceptable. So his exile officially, and interestingly, I need to mention that Shinan's exile can, should be actually broken into two. Two, because the first period was this called imposed exile, when he didn't have a choice to say whether or not he wants to go or not. He was just exiled with Honan. But it didn't last long. I think it lasted like four years or so. And then he was allowed to return, but he didn't. He chose not to return to. And he stayed, uh, he moved eventually to the area. And there are some speculations why he moved there. One of the possibilities was that there were better libraries and he was able to do his uh, writing. And then he returned to Kyoto very late in life, and actually most of his works were written in Kyoto. Shinran actually never claimed to have followers, which is interesting because of so much work he produced, so it can be debated that uh, he, he didn't even consider having followers because... Some of his teachings were misinterpreted because one of the things that he was, in addition to focusing on Nimbutso on the um, recitation of Amida Buddha's uh, name, he was heavily focused on so-called evil people, which is Akuni Shoki, and this created a lot of uh, somewhat misconceptions, and people were saying, okay, you know, if uh, evil is so easily forgiven, so nobody needs to strive for any perfection or anything. And Shinran uh, wrote a lot of letters explaining his teaching and saying that that's not what not intended, so that's not what he meant. And another thing is important, I think it's important, and I might talk about it later, this whole idea of what is evil. Because if we look from a Western perspective or a perspective, this is not what Shinran meant anyway. But there was a lot of things he needed to explain. Uh, so... And one of the things that happened when he entered exile, he called himself neither monk nor lay person. And it's another um, manifestation of his relating to neither one tradition. And I saw it as being this kind of liminal personality, somebody who didn't belong to either one group or another group, which put him in a position of so-called other and allowed him to relate to other people better as well. So you wanted me to talk about my mindless right now? Or, yeah? yeah, maybe if
0: you could just mention sort of this. I mean, yeah, for listeners who aren't familiar with his um, life trajectory and how he went from, you know, the Iberian Peninsula and ended up in Egypt. um, So
1: one of the things I kind of want to mention about Shindra, sorry about my mindless, actually, before I go more into his biography, because uh, I don't want to spend too much time on his biography. But what I wanted to say is, I think you may ask me before why, uh, why this kind of personality or why, by mm-hmm. my mind, is. you asked me about Shinran and I said that I was attracted to his kind of heretical uh, streak and uh, uh, his ability, uh, I should say, to uh, be able to focus on all people and his uh, compassionate approach. But with my mind, it's is a little bit more complicated in a way. But what I want to say that my mind is, uh, is, um, is a legal scholar who uh, wrote commentary to the Mishnah, which is Jewish law. He is a physician and he is a philosopher. So he is a lot of things. And so and uh, when I actually looked at my mind, I was overwhelmed and I thought, OK, how do you even deal with a person who has so many things that he is claimed by religious people as a religious pious Jew he is claimed by people in medical field who as a physician and then also he is claimed as a philosopher. But also people were saying he's not even religious. So. so I wanted to focus on his exile because otherwise I felt like I'm just going to drown because there is so much. So. And, uh, so I thought about what kind of exile he experienced because uh, he actually lived in Spanish, um, Muslim Spain, like you mentioned before, in the I- Iberian Peninsula. Only until a short period of time but interestingly enough would appeal to me as somebody who uh, is also from somewhere else the fact that his whole life he was calling himself undilusioned despite the fact that he left undilusioned early age and so and he had all those undilusioned sensibilities in in fact he will argue even in some cases, when he ended up finally, he was his trajectory was going from Andalusian Spain. He his family traveled in Spain, which part of Christian Spain, that didn't find himself too welcome. Then they went to Morocco, Fez, Morocco. Then spent a little bit of time in Syria, um, in Acre, I think. Then short pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and finally ended up in Fustat, which is uh, old Cairo in Egypt and uh in fact uh when he died egyptians uh claimed him as his own their own
0: uh Mm -hmm. so
1: he was kind of this marginal luminal personality also but he was buried in tiberias in israel despite uh, this kind of claim so for me it was interesting to see uh, somebody who left his uh, family environment but Ended going through many uh, countries in a sense, exposure to different uh, traditions in in a sense too, but still holding to his uh, Andalusian uh, background, which he left early on. So that's another thing that was appealing to me. And another thing for both of these thinkers, uh, both of them were kind of cryptic in a sense. Um, they can compete with each other. Who is more cryptic? I wouldn't be able to say which one, but both of them. Uh, and I think it's any kind of complicated and uh, interesting personality, sometimes they contradict themselves, which is an interesting task to untangle. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you want me to talk
0: uh, no, more. No, that's good. And, and, you know, something you mentioned sort of leads on into my... Um, um, I mean, it's a difficult book to discuss in some ways because a lot of the things I want to ask you are so interconnected. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to ask you a question about the second chapter of the book, but you've already touched on some of these themes. And and, and, and that's about tolerance because in the second chapter of the book, you do focus on Shinran's mm-hmm. and Maimonides' respective attitudes around tolerance, uh, specifically tolerance of others. And you um, you write that um, that for each of these men, uh, recognizing h- human imperfection was central to their conception of tolerance. And you already mentioned this a bit with regards to Shinran and, you know, about sort of um, sort of uh, how he approached sort of so-called evil, you know, people engage in sort of evil activities. So you, you begin in this chapter by noting that in Judaism, tolerance for other groups is intimately tied to exile and the pluralism that exile entails, because of course, you know, People who know Jewish history you know Jews end up living in close proximity to non-Jews right. and as a minority, almost always. And this is was true, of course, in the case of Maimonides, um, who was first a you know religious minority in Iberia and then in or in Muslim Spain and then in Egypt. Um, and then in the case of, um, and then switching to Buddhism, you write that a. Uh, buddhist ideas of tolerance differ from those found in judaism but that in shinran's case his tolerance was rooted conceptually in the idea of compassion and in his understanding of human fallibility um but then again was also influenced by the fact that he was exiled and was coming into contact with others that he wouldn't have had in the same way had he stayed in monastic circles in kyoto so that's kind of a big question, but, I mean, can you just sort of discuss their, diff, you know, how their two, um, respectively, how the twos, uh, what their tolerance of others looked like and how it was similar or different? So,
1: um, if I start with Judaism, I should say that in Judaism, religious law ideally covers all aspects of life, including one's behavior toward one other um, human beings. Um, as people I don't know where or not Judaism consists of 613 commandments which supposedly cover all aspects of life and uh, um, so here is idea of tolerance is um, uh, sometimes not necessarily fully covered by the Jewish law so a tolerance becomes more of expectations of uh, those encounters with others than purely uh, just on religious law so and uh, uh, those exiling conditions always, uh, like I mentioned before, I tuned to the possibility of uh, lost tolerance. And so the idea of them, right? But the idea was that if you expect to be uh, tolerated, you need to be able to tolerate others too. And one of the major focuses in, in Judaism that Uh, uh, in the commandments, but also became even more increased, the idea of focus on peaceful coexistence. So the peaceful coexistence coexistence is also part of um, acceptance of diversity of people and of diversity of opinions and diversity of customs. Uh, Here again, I mentioned before that I think language is an important component of uh, those type of relationship because what Jews always did, regardless where they lived, they learned the language of the host cult- culture, the host country. And so, and it's um, kind of uh, idea that um, allowed them to relate to others and learn their customs and be accepting of them. And um, so again, preservation of peace was a major component. Um, but also, uh, some of the laws were extended to taking into account others. So, for instance, Jews were expected to uh, attend to the sick, attend to the poor. Especially my mind was focusing quite heavily on this idea of other poor and other other sex, so, and also on the uniqueness of all human beings, not just Jews. But it was a little bit tricky, too, because uh, there is also this idea of assimilation. How do you expose yourself to others? How do you accept others without losing your own culture? And, but it's a question uh, more fits into my discussion about particularism, universalism. It's kind of tricky uh, in terms of um, how do Jews navigate and how particularly my mind just helps to navigate. Another idea, and it kind of interrelated in a sense with Shinran is that Maman is so God as this forgiving parent, but I want to make sure we don't mix the idea of uh, Shinran's view of Amira and um, Mamani's view of God because those are not related. There is no transcendent God that Shinran ever appealed to Amira is not we should not there is a lot of sometimes discussions about. Seeing uh, Pure Land Buddhism very close to Christianity, uh, and it's uh, in my view, it's an incorrect way. So, when I compare uh, my mind with Shinran, I want to make sure that those are not the same ideas. My mind is God is not Shinran's uh, Amida Buddha, even though, uh, like I said, uh, my mind sees God as a forgiving parent. There's a difference though, again, so my sees a God as beyond this transcendent God that doesn't exist. But even though my mind sees God as a forgiving parent, still he expects people to repent and correct their actions. That's not the same kind of expectation that Shinran is placing because Shinran is um, probably uh, for simplicity, would was a lot less judgmental maybe in some ways, he is more accepting of human uh, weaknesses. Uh, Maimonides will ex- accept human weaknesses just because he feels that Jews cannot afford to lose another Jews. Jewish community is a minority community. Jews cannot say, you know, because of your behavior, you're no longer... Uh, Shindran is not led by the same considerations, but regardless, uh, Shindran is uh, very self-reflective, and he is recognizing his own Imperfections, and so he extends this kind of idea to others. My mind is a little bit um, less accepting from this standpoint. And to be honest, there are some stricts of elitism in uh, my mind. Is. It doesn't reduce his uh, brilliancy, but there is something to say that um, these two men probably wouldn't see eye to eye if they will get together.
0: Great. Thanks very much for that. Um, so I, 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 I want to then sort of move on to chapter three, which is, is, is related to chapter two, but has a different focus. And, 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 and here you kind of, um, and then I guess here we'll get a little bit into your, your, your comments and arguments about, uh, particularism. Um, and, 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 and in this chapter, you look at Maimonides and Shinran's view of the so-called other and, Your argument here is that both thinkers are more or less in agreement with the idea that particular particularism rather than. uh, Depending on vilification of another actually decreases such vilification and instead increases tolerance of others. So in your answer, if you could just start by explaining what you mean by particularism, but but maybe we can begin with Maimonides and. Here, sort of echoing a bit of your answer to the previous question, Maimonides was very concerned with tradition, preservation of tradition, following and maintaining certain norms, uh, norms that, of course, in maintaining them would set him and his community apart from others. And unlike Shinran, he was accepted within his community, within the Jewish community, but that the community in which he was accepted was uh, somehow seen as, you know, apart and foreign or um, other within the larger society in which it existed, be it Muslim Spain or, or Christian Spain or, or mm-hmm. Egypt. Um, so what was, maybe starting with Maimonides, what was his sort of view of the other here?
1: So I think this is a truly excellent question and I have been thinking about it quite a bit and I probably will continue thinking because it still remains an interesting question even outside of this particular environment. Uh, So, and uh, it's, I I think I mentioned before that Shinran said about himself that he's neither monk nor a lay person. It's almost to me, it's like thinking of particularism versus universalism. It's like analogous to thinking of Shinran, whether a monk or a lay person in a way uh, so but um um it's interesting for my mind is, is that um uh who was he? actually was he the other was he um fully accepted like you mentioned before uh he was living in this community he was this uh, uh rabbi of this jewish community but he also was a um a personal physician to a um sultan who to uh saladin the first sultan of egypt uh, egypt in syria but despite this again he is positioned well in his own community he is respected physician as the sultan uh but he never forgot about his own marginality so uh as well as uh, of marginality of the community again like i mentioned before the community depended on the generosity of the host but also Uh, He recognized very well that the generosity can easily uh, just stop in any moment. Uh, So he was very well aware of being this other. Again, from when he was traveling from country to country, he became quite aware of this. Uh, And um, there's another question that um, was important is, how do you preserve your particularity uh, there's what do you do with your identity uh, if you are afraid that your identity, your life can be all of a sudden uh, expected to change? And uh, so the option would be perhaps easiest option would be for Mamandis' family to assimilate and convert. That's what was expected, but that's not what Mamandis wanted. And I think you mentioned before that he was very interested in this idea of preservation so uh so honoring one's tradition at the area you're asking the preservation of tradition means honoring this tradition right but um how do you honor the tradition without uh alienating people so you kind of again i was talking before you have to compromise you walk the fine line between becoming extremely particularistic, moving into the whole idea of parochialism, saying, oh, my community, the only community. So uh, there is this idea of preserving without necessarily disregarding something else. And so this, um, he wanted to preserve this uniqueness and again, this particularism, and then he wanted also not to jeopardize his own community He was walking this fine line all the time. That's why I was calling him particularist universalist because he wanted to accept universal ideas, but he wanted to preserve this uniqueness of his community. And again, I think the fact that he traveled and the the fact that his uh, family was exiled uh, allowed him to see firsthand how things can change very quickly. Mm. So... Uh, he didn't want to be a separatist, exclusivist and somebody intolerant, So, but he wanted to preserve the particular ideas of the community and by particular ideas of community I can just give a couple of examples would be keeping sabbath or keeping kosher food and things like this, which is sometimes perceived as exclusivist and uh, so you navigate between this particularism and universalism, how much you accept other cultures, but how much you Hold
0: to your own. Right, right. Now that's interesting. And 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 then just to just to bring in Shinran there, and you know, you note that in contrast to Maimonides, Shinran, he always remained within his own culture, but within that culture was exiled and ended up in close proximity to and relationship with many Japanese who were of a very different background and class, and so. So how, what, what was Shinran's view of the other than, and how did this differ from um, Maimonides?
1: Um, so I mentioned before, in fact is that he extricated himself from monastic community. First he was extricated, he exiled, but then he didn't return, right? Because even when his exile was, so he chose to remain with a group, this different group. So he is with a group of people uh, who are uh, those simple um, people that he uh, came to see as most genuine and uh, most kind and most compassionate in a way. Uh, so in the monastic community, he happened to see sudden uh, hypocrisy. There's some verses. I don't have like, my uh, text right in front of me to read those, but where he pretty much pointed out that um, they preach one thing and do another thing. And with the outside of monastic community, he never saw this. He saw this genuine um, approach to life and uh, it really appealed to him. And so, uh, But one of the interesting things about him is, uh, um, I was um, thinking about, as I was writing about Jewish approach, Jewish importance of so-called justice, but for Shinran, justice was sometimes seen as more arbitrary uh, because um, he saw uh, the big role of karma, and I don't know, I think uh, karma is uh, something, of course, non-comparable to Jewish thought, but very central to Shinran, because he thought that uh, not always you can uh, affect your uh, fortune, your uh, destiny, just by what uh, Shinran will say, what my mind will say, repent and correct. Shenran will consider those are not something that always are under human uh, ability, and uh, only Amida Buddha can actually allow one to be uh, on the road to enlightenment and road to peaceful, uh, to nirvana, or whatever you will call it, uh, to enlightenment. Uh, so, and uh, I think I mentioned before that. Uh, Evil is another very interesting component. And so what is evil, according to Shinran, is not how we see it in Mandistic religions. And it's not black and white, but it's actually our inability to extricate ourselves from attachments. It's our constant blind passions, our desire for things, our uh, envy, our jealousy, and things of this nature that uh, Shinran saw as evil. And the first thing that was... um, I don't know if if say expected is correct word because Shinran will, will, I guess, um, not like the idea of saying that something is expected because it has to come from genuine understanding uh, and uh, shouldn't be ever done as calculative measures because if we decide to change something because we want to get enlightenment, he will say, There is this calculative thinking that is reducing. So it has to be just your general recognition of uh, your so-called blind passions that uh, disallow you to gain uh, acceptance of Amida Buddha and lead to the uh, road of enlightenment. So no utilitarian thinking is accepted by um, Shinran in a way. so,
0: yeah, no, that's mm-hmm. sorry. Were you going to? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, that's great. That's very clear. Thank you. Um, now, now, in, in the final chapter, you sort of look at this. Um, well, in your own words, you look at Shingran and Maimonides' respective approaches to the other, as seen through the lens of particularism and universalism, and. Your argument here and in the book is that they're both, in a sense, uh, universalists of a sort. Um, and you've already mentioned that in the case of Maimonides, he's both particularist and universalist. He has this these aspirations towards these sort of univ- towards this type of universalism, but then he's also particular. He also practices a form of particularism insofar as he wants to maintain certain. Um, traditions and maintain you know certain yeah traditions within the Jewish community. Um, so so I, I guess what I'd like you to address is first, is that a, is that a uh, an accurate representation of your sort of of your portrayal of um, Maimonides in terms of the degree to which he was a universalist in particular? And then secondly, in your answer, if you could just talk about Shinran to what degree is he, you you know, after, what's your conclusion? What sort of, how is he promoting a form of universalism? Um,
1: So it's a question about my you're saying whether it's accurate portrayal uh, in terms of him being particularistic universalist or being just particularist or being just universalist it continues to be debated, to be honest. So there are scholars who will say that to consider my mind as particularism will be completely incorrect. Some will say that to consider him universals will be completely incorrect. I think I mentioned in in the beginning that he's seen by different scholars, but also from what position you're looking. You're looking from religious position versus you're looking more from his philosophical position, when he is endorsing so many Aristotelian views, which will make people in religion shudder and uh, completely dislike. So I don't think there is, a, you know, universal response to this question. I think that mm, perhaps that's why I say he's a uh, universalist or particularist universalist, because I see in him boss kind of streaks, and I see him holding to the tradition, which I think is important but I also don't know whether you can actually find anyone who uh, appreciates his own and say, I am complete universalist and I don't really care about the details and particularities of my own tradition. So I think it can be debated. Uh, so in terms of uh, Shinran is, I think, most often is seen as universalist because of Amida Buddha universal law, which is accepting everyone. But here is also his uh, dedication to nin- Ninbutsu, and, uh, which is recitation of Amida's Buddhist name, and only after there's a recitation of Amida's Buddhist name one can be uh, part of this tradition. So perhaps there is elements of particularism if you look from this standpoint. Um, I don't know, it, again, it can be debated. Um, but in overall, I think this uh, appreciation and respect of one's own tradition uh, is, um, in both of them, really important. Uh, I don't think that um, Shinran actually left, to some degree at least, uh, Tendai tradition, though uh, there are some elements of Tendai tradition perhaps in, in Pure too, because Buddhism, um, cannot completely extricate itself from its uh, original kind of thought. Uh, this Mahayana tradition is in Pure Land Buddhism and in true Pure Land Buddhism. So um, mm-hmm. there are the universal stricts, but also I think some particular stricts as well in your thoughts.
0: Great, great. Thank you. So, I mean, I should, I should mention at this point for the listeners that, of course, you know, in your book, you go into, you know, great, and very specific detail to support your arguments. And, you know, in this interview, obviously, I've just, we've just been sort of scratching the surface. So all you listeners will have to read the book yourselves to appreciate the argument in full. Um, as a final question, I just wanted to ask now that you've, you, you, now that this book has um, has been published, uh, is there anything in particular that you're working on now?
1: Um, so the idea of, If thinking back to the book, the idea of empathy uh, still remains very interesting and important idea for me. I I wrote a little bit about empathy before, and I looked at uh, German philosopher Edith Stein, looking in her uh, whether or not we can empathize if we don't experience something. But then she turned into uh, actually looking into community. So I'm interested in empathy from more communal standpoint. but uh, I kind of returned to my interest in gossiping. Remember I <laughs> said initially that um, comparison, uh are... And it's a difficult kind of uh, area because um, you, you need to care about both. I mean, can I expect people to care both about my mother's general? Probably not. And so I am now embarking on something that might be challenging. I'm looking at the Russian uh, philosopher uh, Nikolai Trubitskoy. Uh, and I am comparing his work with Watsuji, and I'm looking in specifically on their view on nationalism.
0: Wow, that sounds really interesting. Well, we will look forward to a uh, big fat tome on that topic in (laughs) the the years to come. Um, Well, I wanted to thank you now um, for taking the time to speak with me today um, and for everyone who's listening So that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time.
1: Thank you so much.